Congress came back to us and said, what can you do with 107? All right? And so at that point, a light went out. We said, we can't do this the old-fashioned way. What we're going to do is we're going to put together the best and the brightest from the Department of Commerce, and we're going to come up with a joint ZTA for the entire Department of Commerce. Today on the Daily Scoop podcast from the Scoop News Group, closing out 2023, the last episode of the Daily Scoop this year, and a look at Commerce's whole-of-department approach to zero trust. It's Thursday, December 21st, 2023. Welcome to the Daily Scoop podcast, where you'll hear the latest news and trends facing government leaders. I'm the host of the Daily Scoop podcast, Billy Mitchell. Here's what's happening now. While generative AI tools like ChatGBT have taken the world by storm in 2023, it's been a mixed bag for federal agencies on whether they are comfortable leveraging the large language models for agency work. The Department of Agriculture is one of those agencies that, pretty early on, determined that ChatGPT was not a good fit for it. FedScoop reported this week that USDA determined early in 2023 that the generative AI tool posed too high a risk to use on its network and prohibited its use. And newer interim guidance issued in October extended that prohibition more broadly to employee and contractor use of third-party generative AI tools in their official capacities and on government equipment. The agency also established a board that's creating a process to review proposed uses of the technology going forward, according to documents obtained through a Freedom of Information Act request. And in other news, NIST is looking for information to assist how it implements several requirements under President Joe Biden's Artificial Intelligence Executive Order, including the development of evaluation capabilities and the creation of red teaming test guidance. The agency released a request for public inspection on the Federal Register on Tuesday related to NIST's requirements under the AIEO to establish best practices for industry on AI development create guidance for evaluating AI capabilities, produce a report on reducing synthetic content from AI, and make a plan for developing global consensus standards. Comments are due before February 2nd. And in a similar move, CISA is looking for feedback on its Secure by Design white paper, which pushes software manufacturers to follow more stringent security principles in the design and development of all products shipped out to customers. CISA initially published its white paper in April, but released updated joint guidance with 17 domestic and foreign partners in October, following feedback from hundreds of individuals, companies, and nonprofits. Among the many prompts CISA included in the RFI this week were callouts for feedback on how to better incorporate security into the secure software development lifecycle, how secure by design principles can be integrated into computer science education, and general comments regarding the economics of implementing secure by design practices and the costliness of software vulnerabilities. The deadline for comment submissions to CISA is February 20th. You can read more about these stories and more at fedscoop.com. While AI stole the show in 2023 in terms of top federal IT trends and themes, cybersecurity, particularly the adoption of zero trust, remained an essential focus across the federal government. While agencies are taking varied paths to modernizing their cybersecurity with zero trust architectures, the Department of Commerce has taken perhaps the most aggressive and streamlined approach in moving to zero trust as one department, rather than letting bureaus and sub-agencies plot their own course. 
Andre Mendez, the outgoing CIO of the Commerce Department, spoke recently at CyberTalks, giving an exclusive deep dive into the department's zero-trust transformation. Mendez was joined by Blair Heiserman, CISO and Network Director at NIST, and Ron Ringold, Commerce's Director of the Office of Cybersecurity Architecture Services, to share the department's journey. Let's listen in now to that conversation. All right. Good afternoon. For the record, I wanted to let you know that I asked for the walk-up music to be all the pretty girls walk like this. Uh, but Goldie said no, okay? So blame her. But you got lovely, you know, strings. Um, so the current environment is unbelievably challenging, right? And at every stake, things keep getting faster and faster and faster. Because technology permeates every aspect of our culture anymore from the smallest things at the individual level to the largest things at, at the uh, cultural level and civilization level, the stakes from a cybersecurity standpoint have become enormous, absolutely enormous. And so doing what we used to do is not going to be necessary. It will not get us where we need to get to. And so we needed to go through a transformation at the Department of Commerce in order to uh, abide by that necessity. So we're going to tell you a little bit of a story. On December 11th of 2019, I had both the horror and the honor of declaring a major on solar winds. And what, what, what followed that is, is actually quite an interesting story because Congress came to the Department of Commerce and said, how much money do you need in order to make sure that that never happens again? They weren't particularly happy with the fact that I told them that there's not enough money in the world for me to assure you that will never happen again. But we'll poll the bureaus and tell you what we need to do in order to improve our, our security to a level that is about as good as it gets uh, and, uh, and mitigates the risk to the degree it can. And we polled the bureaus and they told us $250 million. Congress came back to us and said, what can you do with 107? All right, and so at that point, a light went out we said, we can't do this the old-fashioned way. What we're going to do is we're going to put together the best and the brightest from the Department of Commerce, and we're going to come up with a joint ZTA for the entire Department of Commerce, right? Because otherwise, the money will be appropriated to the bureaus, and we would have 13 different ZTA architectures, and we could not leverage economies of scale. So from that arose the creation of the Department of Commerce uh, Zero Trust Architecture Working Group, okay? And what I'm going to ask these two gentlemen to talk about is how that came about, how that worked, how that process is going, and what results have been gotten so far, and where do we expect to go in the near future, okay? So with that, I'm going to turn it to Ron Ringold, cybersecurity extraordinaire, for him to give us the next chapter in this story. All right, thank you. Thank you, Andre. So as, as Andre mentioned, uh, when we take a step back and we looked at deploying a cybersecurity program across the Department of Commerce, one of the things that we noticed was it is hard, right? To implement transformational change and culture change across the department and enable enterprise cybersecurity capabilities, to Andre's point, everybody wants to do something different. So when the Executive Order 14028, Improving the Nation's Cybersecurity came out, this was our chance and our opportunity to really drive enterprise capabilities and have all of the Department of Commerce and its bureaus 
adapt these capabilities so everyone is at a similar maturity. And if you take a look at the CISA Zero Trust Maturity Model, you will see that there are several different maturity uh, levels in that, in that model. We are striving to be optimal. And to do that, we have to have a similar approach all across the department. So with that EO, as Andre mentioned, we stood up the Commerce Cybersecurity Task Force. This predates our Zero Trust Architecture Working Group. And we got together and we looked at the, the requirements set forth in the EO. And we got together with all of the best and the brightest from our bureaus. And we looked at the capabilities that we could deploy to meet these requirements. Out of that program, out of that group, we've deployed our Enterprise Risk and Vulnerability and Managed Vulnerability Detection Program, which all of our bureaus are currently on board with and leveraging those programs, making the attack surface at the Department of Commerce smaller and securing all of our public facing and internal applications. Uh, subsequent to that, with all of the releases in the, the OMB memoranda, the CISA BODs, uh, we created the Zero Trust Architecture Working Group. Within that working group, again, it's made up of the best and the brightest of all of our bureaus, appointed by their bureau CIOs. And within that group, uh, we've drafted the Department of Commerce Zero Trust Architecture Strategy and Roadmap. Within this strategy, we identified core capabilities that we needed to uh, deploy across the department to ensure that everyone had a similar deployment for their zero trust architecture. Within there, we identified five capability areas. An identity management system, a zero trust network architecture or secure access service ed capability, uh, endpoint detection and response, having an enterprise EDR capability that all of our bureaus can deploy, which increases oversight and visibility at the department and also increases our ability to report all of the capabilities or all the, the, the information that we need in support of our FISMA reporting, as well as all of our reporting through CDM. Also, we have our SOC modernization program um, and our data security capability that I, I heard uh, being talked about earlier today. So those five core capabilities we defined within our zero trust architecture strategy as something that we need to deploy across the entire de the department. And to Andre's point, we stood up the Zero Trust Architecture Working Group, which is how we do our evaluations and how we do our collaboration and our community of practice across the department. And I'm going to turn it over to my, my friend and colleague, Blair Heisman, to discuss how we do our Zero Trust Architecture Working Group. Thanks, Ronald. So this is, I think, a story that all of you are very familiar with because I've heard it multiple times throughout the morning. Uh, but it's also about breaking down the silos, ensuring that we actually have all of the mission needs from each of the bureaus in mind. And so part of the way the Zero Trust Architecture Working Group was assembled was to ensure that you had correct subject matter experts to help make the recommendations, the selections, to discuss it both in terms of current architecture and desired capabilities. So for each of these areas, we had uh, vehement arguments about what the different capabilities were, why everybody's individual, internal, already deployed solution was in fact the correct one that we should obviously <laughs> uh, adopt for everyone, but also then made certain that we were able to take that, go back out to both a broader perspective, look at solutions that worked for all of commerce, that encompassed everyone's mission, and made certain that it actually had the necessary capabilities as part of the requirements. 
So going back to sort of a very fundamental systems engineering uh, perspective, making certain that the mission, the need, the identity, the data, all of the pillars were represented and that the solutions that were selected worked together, uh, which then meant that we had to ensure that everything that we were working on fundamentally required that collaboration between the bureaus, between the vendors, and then actually as part of our selection process, we did that deep dive into what does our environment look like? So understanding we have both satellites, we have weather analysis, we have a broad spectrum of mission needs, all of which including fundamental and applied uh, research. So if you can think of something that you're going to need to support, different risk postures, you have to very much incorporate that into how you do your tool selection. From there, we essentially took recommendations from the bureaus. What did they think were going to work for them? We then had discussions that built us into the specifics of each of the different pillars and also the discussions of how we would migrate to those and whether or not we thought the value was sufficient to actually get us all the way to the posture that we wanted and the order in which we would do them. Without all of that, we leave ourselves in a very perilous position of this transition time from our existing technologies to future or modernizing technologies. Being able to then take the solutions that we've picked and use those as opportunities to recoup costs, leverage the buying power of the whole agency instead of an individual bureau, make that part of the guiding philosophy of how we get to where we need to be. So from there, we had the basic acknowledgement of we need support for Linux, Mac OS, and Windows. And that actually represents a pretty interesting technical perspective in that that support is not always broad across all of the solutions. So as you had uh, EDR, it's not just what did you currently have, but it is, a, is it actually something that is recognized as being effective? Is it continuing to evolve and stay current with the developing tactics, techniques, and procedures that threat actors are using. Can you actually get that data in the kind of time that you want to make it actionable? Making certain that also, quite frankly, that commerce can see everything so that they have the visibility to be able to be responsive. So that, unfortunately, when breaches happen, that you're able to do that immediate detection, response, and recovery so that you're able to, again, leverage what's necessary and have everyone be ready. We then moved on to identity to make certain that we were able to implement phishing resistant MFA and that that is a capability that helps to eliminate passwords in our environments. Now with many of these tools, these are ones that we are starting the process of rolling out because to do that proper requirements engineering did take time. You had to break down the silos. You had to build the cooperation. You had to also do actual hands-on uh, validation of the tools that we're looking at, not just marketing presentations, making certain that the actual truth of the product matched what you were attempting to implement. And since there are always gotchas, that very much gets you to the point of, oh, I made a bad assumption when I was looking at this tool, but through the demo, I was actually able to validate what it was I was going to try and get to. And also by reaching out to our peers in other agencies, to CISA, to GSA, to make certain that we are able to actually leverage the knowledge and essentially the whole of government to get to the right kind of path. 
And ultimately, that is something that requires a fair amount of uh, time to get through. And so we have made our progress through each of these steps. We still are working on our final data pillar, but have essentially cemented our approach are working towards the actual implementation and engineering in that transition process. And so each of these was very much with the uh, options provided by the bureaus, the technical evaluation, and then ultimately the uh, selection of those products to make certain that that zero trust oper operational uh, impact is to the betterment of all of us, that we can leverage each person's lessons learned and that ultimately that provides better security for all and of course, you know, actually allows the mission to occur, which is why we're all here in the first place. And so with that, Andre? Very good. Okay. So, I mean, uh, a, a clear description of how this process worked, right? But the reality is the proof is in the pudding, right? If we go through all of this and we're just operating, you know, in a more unified environment, but there's not economies of scale, right, in all kinds of categories, then we haven't really accomplished everything that we needed to accomplish. What these gentlemen failed to tell you, okay, and, 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 and deservedly so, right, because uh, they're technical experts. I'm a little more of a salesperson because I have to be, is that this was not an easy process from the get-go. When we passed this idea of having a centralized environment for ZTA and a centralized budget, our budget people told us that that was not possible because the Hill would never agree to give all the money to a bureaucrat like me. They wanted it at the bureaus, at the front lines where the impact was. And I convinced them that we could do better by having these economies of scale. So they said, okay, we'll let you talk to OMB. So we went to talk to OMB. And they told us exactly the same thing that my budget team had told me. No, 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 no. The people on the Hill want to give the money to the bureaus in the front lines, not to a bureaucrat like you. Okay, and so we convinced them and they allowed us to talk to the appropriators. So we went to talk to the appropriators and lo and behold, the speech came out the third time, exactly the same way. But we convinced them and they finally allowed us to do it, right? So that's the great thing. People in our budget shop, people at OMB, people in the appropriators took the risk for a novel approach to get this kind of stuff done. It's fantastic, right? It's fantastic. Because that's how change is brought to the table. Now, here's the reality. When we deployed our EDR system, we were able to, they, they were able to negotiate a pricing with the vendor that was exceptional, absolutely exceptional, to such a degree that our first estimate for the cost of the EDR was almost halved and we had to go in front of the appropriators and let them know that you know, we were in a different situation in OMB because we had spent less money, right? How often do they get to hear that, right? And so that means that we could have more money for these subsequent steps, possibly implementing the, the entire thing without having to ask for more money. The second thing that is also relevant is this. Just recently, we did a uh, implementation of our ICAM environment, right? And we learned a lot of lessons through that process in terms of interfaces and how to set it up, configuration, everything else. Ron tells me that when they did the second one, that implementation was that much easier, right? And so what do you think is gonna happen with the third one and the fourth one and the fifth one? 
it gets easier and easier and easier, faster and faster and faster. And we develop the skill sets in order to be able to deal and help people along the way if they have any configuration issues, if they have any operational issues, and in case of a breach, if they have the necessity for remediation, right? These are the economies of scales that nobody talks about. Also, the fact that because we're doing a central procurement for this and negotiating those uh, licenses like that, none of the bureaus have to go through their own procurement places where lawyers have to review contracts and T's and C's, right? Where everybody has to go through the process for having the, the ATOs and everything all in place, right? The savings from that are enormous, right? Now, is this unique to ZTA? No. This is true of every system that we have in the federal government, right? And with every system where within a department there are multiple instances doing the same thing in a separate way, we are literally wasting money, right? The large department that two weeks ago announced that they were starting the evaluation of their 44 different ZTA architectures. Another department told me that they have 97 different ZTA architectures. Does that make sense to you? It does not make sense to me. And I don't want to cast aspersions on anybody, right? I mean, it is what it is, right? But we can do things better because our adversaries have almost limitless funds because they know that this is the most important part of the equation these days, right? When you go from just protecting a system with a password, a username and password, to protecting the future of civilization, the future of humankind, with artificial intelligence environments, with biotechnology environments, with nanotechnology environments, where your intellectual property and your data become so important that somebody can literally hack into your DNA at an individual level, right? If you're taking a particular medication and it's driven by your DNA, which more and more is the case, instead of being just a, a medication for everybody, and somebody hacks into that pharmacy system, and all of a sudden they change the medication that you're supposed to be taking, and you're taking medication that is not customized for your DNA, what happens? You could die, right? The stakes are getting larger and larger and larger. You know, the control systems, the SCADA systems, all of these things that control the life of civilization are now driven by information technology. And as a result, they need to be protected by the most robust possible cybersecurity environments. And we cannot spend enough money by doing what we used to do. What got us here will not get us there. Now, does this apply just to cybersecurity? No. Human resources systems, financial analysis systems, procurement systems, performance evaluation systems. You go through the litany of things and we don't adopt this type of environment. I think that we are creating an environment that becomes totally and completely unsustainable and that we cannot live with. So thank you for your time. Very much appreciated. And we'll be glad to answer any questions. Send me an email, whatever. But I believe that we have a model that is going to produce for the taxpayer. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Thank you, John. You can learn more about Federal Zero Trust efforts at thedailyscooppodcast.com. The Daily Scoop Podcast is available on all podcast platforms. If you've already rated the podcast on your platform of choice, thanks so much. High ratings and good reviews of the show help more people to find it. The Daily Scoop Podcast is a production of the Scoop News Group in Washington, D.C. Adam Butler and Carlin Fisher help put the show together and the entire Scoop News group team contributes. We'll be back in the new year with brand new episodes. Until then, I'm wishing you and yours the best holidays and a happy new year. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Billy Mitchell.